Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we discuss yet another form of discrimination. It's a subtle form of code switch, but effective. It's how people are discriminated against because of what their voice gives away. Can you tell a black voice from a white voice? The plot lines of two recent movies take this on, and so do we, with our guest, John Baugh, the Margaret Bush Wilson Professor in Arts and Sciences at Washington University. John, great to have you back again. It's nice to be here, Don. You've done an awful lot of research on this issue of black voices and white voices. In very general terms, what have you found uh, over the years? Well, from a linguistic point of view, the dialect that's distinctive to slave descendants in the United States is the result of racial isolation and also the fact that slavery was legal in the South. So the black dialect has been strongly influenced by white Southern speech. And then once blacks migrated to other parts of the country, they were still racially isolated in Chicago, Detroit, Boston, Philadelphia. And so the distinctive character of the dialect prevailed. And what is the distinctive character in a sense? Can you can you describe it or even say it? Well, the distinctive character is embodied in pronunciation as well as some grammatical features. Hmm. So, for example, there's a unique usage of the word be that conveys habituality as in they be happy, hmm. meaning they're happy all of the time, which is different from they are happy or many African-Americans would say it without the verb to be and just simply say they happy. And that is not shared by many other uh, dialect groups. Um, although many Americans will use the word ain't, uh, African-Americans almost are distinctive in their use of ain't for didn't, as in I ain't run the stop sign. Well, it's, it doesn't apply to all blacks, does it? No, absolutely <laughs> not. Uh, and in fact, the racial attribution to dialects is really a misnomer. And so it has a lot – your speech has a lot to do with uh, your linguistic exposure as well as personal identity. Well, you've, uh, you've done a number of tests in various parts of the country be, be, to uh, analyze and research the discriminatory aspect of uh, how speech is received. Give me a sense, if you would, of, uh, of, of what you learned and how that research was conducted. Well, I, I, that, that research began uh, in, in looking at housing discrimination. And many people could not detect that I'm African-American based on my mm -hmm. speech. But I grew up in an inner-city African-American neighborhood. And rather than sue the prospective landlords who denied me housing, I began to conduct experiments in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I would modify my dialect when I would be calling for the apartment. And because I grew up in Los Angeles, I could – Sometimes I'm like a Chicano and I would modify my speech in that way. And so uh, as a psychologist, the control on that experiment is quite extraordinary because I'm the same individual. Who I am does not change. The manner in which I spoke changed. And I got very different results depending on the dialect that I used. But basically the results, the results were discriminatory. If you were looking for an apartment, you wouldn't get the apartment. Looking for a job, you wouldn't get the job. In upscale situations, I also had the flip side where when I used the professional sounding voice in the lower income community, they were incredulous and surprised. They, they wanted to remind me that this was, you know, East Oakland and you probably might not want to live here. Well, how, how did you lose whatever it was when you were growing up in the inner city? Uh, it's not a question of lose. It's a question uh, to a certain extent of 
Everyone has a degree of linguistic dexterity. All of us. The Queen of England has a formal or informal range. In my life experience, I was exposed to uh, people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds and, and at a very young age. And so whereas somebody who's a child who's exposed to multiple languages learns those languages, I was exposed to many different dialects and I was able to mimic the dialects of my peers. And, and how has that helped you? I assume it has. It has, but I, as, as a child, I had no idea I was going to become a linguistic professor. Mm-hmm. So, and initially, uh, I, I'm embarrassed to admit that as a child, I, I, I used this dialect dexterity to make fun of, of those who were learning English as a second language. So I had neighbors that were Chinese of Chinese and Japanese descent, and I would, I would mock their speech. How do you use this uh, research today and what you've learned? Well, the research expanded, and I am now um, working often closely with attorneys who are uh, perplexed by how to evaluate linguistic discrimination in legal cases. And this comes up in a combination of criminal or civil cases. So, example, for example, you mentioned some of the civil instances where someone might not get a job based on the sound of their voice. Uh, but it also shows up in uh, criminal cases, uh, for example, with wiretaps where uh, what's said is not particularly clear. And um, also it's important to recognize, at least with respect to linguistic discrimination, it's not always racial. So, for example, um, New Yorkers, may people who grew up in New York may not uh, value a southern dialect and vice versa. Those that grew up in the south aren't particularly enamored with uh, – the speech of New Englanders. It's really an insidious form of discrimination, isn't it? Because it's not one-on-one contact face-to-face. Well, and also mm-hmm. it's off, it often goes undetected. If yeah. you call for an apartment and you're told it's unavailable, you don't have a basis of comparison. You simply have to take it at face value. Yeah. We, we have a couple of clips from the two movies that uh, I, I mentioned in the introduction. Uh, the Sorry to Bother You is one of them, and then there's Spike Lee's movie, uh, Black Klansman. You've seen both of these films. I have. I have. Let, let's talk a little bit about Sorry to Bother You because that's about telemarketing. Can you kind of set up what, uh, what that whole plot line is? Well, it's, it's a science fiction movie, but the plot line that I think we're going to hear where the clip is is where – a telemarketer who has a distinctly African-American dialect is encouraged to sound more like a white person. And again, as a linguist, I wouldn't characterize it based on racial terms. But once he transforms his speech pattern, he becomes tremendously successful. Well, let's have a listen to that. Hey, young blood, let me give you a tip. Use your white voice. Man, I ain't got no white voice. Oh, come on, you know what I mean. You have a white voice in there, you can use it. It's like when you're pulled over by the police. Oh, no, I just use my regular voice when that happens. I just say, back the fuck up off the car and don't nobody get hurt. Right, man, I'm just trying to give you some game. You want to make some money here? Then read the script with a white voice. When people say I talk with a white voice anyway, so why ain't it helping me out? Well, you don't talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. I'm talking about the real deal. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer, this is Langston from Regal View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did I? Well, there you go. Is that the same the same voice? The same person? No, 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 that's a, that's a voiceover. Yeah, it's a, it's a voiceover. It's not Danny Glover producing a second dialect. What is a Will Smith White? Will Smith White is uh, similar to Reverend Jackson or Al Sharpton. Uh, it's when an African-American... 
produces grammatical structures that are standard English, but with a distinctive African-American pronunciation. We have uh, callers that are starting to call in, and I want to encourage that. I have no doubt. <laughs> if, you, if, if you out there in the listening audience have any uh, experience of discrimination because of uh, your voice and what you sound like, we'd like to hear from you. But let's bring in David calling from St. Louis. David, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Uh, yes. Uh, the the topic brought to mind the memory of Liz Brown, who was a strong and confident and clear speaker for Black St. Louis beginning in the early 90s. Tragically, she died a year ago this week. But I remember um, when she first went on the air, callers came in and just could not believe that she was Black, uh, despite her statement, well, yes, I am, always have been. And um, it's kind of remarkable to me that after WGNU, went out of business um, because, for whatever reason, when after the owner died, the rest of the St. Louis media, Liz would generally not be allowed on. And she really only had a following on MSNBC uh, after Michael Brown, uh, when the uh, hosts of the MSNBC television shows realized she was such a brilliant speaker. Um, there's a book out now uh, by the last name of the, he's um, a gay writer of color. His last name is Che, but I remember um, in a review, I've not read the book, but he was quoted as saying, you know, you only get to say the truth if nothing's going to change. And um, I, it's, I really wish that Liz had gotten greater airtime, including on public broadcasting, uh, because she was such an effective and powerful speaker. David, thank you for the call. Are you familiar with the Liz Brown story? I don't know Liz Brown. No, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I'm not really quite sure exactly what uh, what he is referring to there. But um, anyway, we'll accept more calls at 382-8255. Let's, uh, let's go to another clip from that other film that I mentioned. This is the Spike Lee film, and it's called Black Klansman. And, um, well, I think uh, you better set that up as well. This concerns an, an, a black man who is an undercover agent working with a Ku Klux, a Ku Klux Klan through, uh, o- only over the telephone. Right. So in this particular instance, uh, uh, an African-American officer uh, begins to work for the undercover department and, in, and on his own initiates uh, a, a survey of the Klan, which he begins over the telephone. And he portrays himself during the telephone call as a white man and convinces the Klan members that indeed he is. But he has to collaborate with a white colleague who then goes and meets the Klan in person. And they have some interesting uh, sections in the film where people aren't sure that it's the same voice when they meet the white officer in person. This is from the Black Klansman. How do you propose to make this investigation? Well, I've established contact and created some familiarity with the Klansman over the phone. I'll continue in that role, but I'll need another officer. Surprise, surprise, a white officer to play me when they meet face-to-face. That's my point exactly. Chief, black Ron Stallworth over the phone, white Ron Stallworth face-to-face, so there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? I believe we can with the right white man. We can do anything. And that's a scene from uh, Black Klansman, and uh, uh, that's a true story. This it is, is a true story. Absolutely yes. a true story. It my is. my impression is, uh, John Ball, that 
that um, ultimately this officer and the Klansman became friends. I believe that that is the case in real life. And in fact, recently, uh, David Duke uh, got in touch with the officer uh, because he was concerned about how he was going to be portrayed in the film. So uh, they've maintained contact. Who who portrayed uh, Stallworth in the film? Um, I know it was Denzel Washington's son. I should know this young man's name. But what's interesting to me as a linguist is when I hear his standard English, I think he's African-American. And I think that many of your listeners, uh, especially those familiar with African-American speech patterns, would see him in the uh, tradition of well-educated African-Americans who are still identifiable. And so it's it's interesting from my perspective because depending upon your experience and, and exposure, he may not sound white to you. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you're the expert on this. He sounded white to me. He sounded like a white New Yorker to me. Is uh-huh. more, more, more to the point. He, he may he may be a New Yorker. There's no doubt about that. All right. Well, you have to take a break. We'll do that and uh, come back and continue our conversation with John Ball. And we are talking about uh, black people sometimes trying to sound white and for various reasons. Uh, we'll continue that conversation momentarily. If you'd like to be a part of it, give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you'd prefer to send a tweet, do so at STL on air. Back in a moment, this is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. And welcome back. We'll continue our conversation with John Ball on the subject of African Americans sounding white. John what do we sound like here, whites and blacks? In St. Louis? In St. Louis, yeah. St. Louis is interesting because it really is the crossroad for the entire country. It's the place where the east meets the west. It's where the north meets the south. And the linguistic collision results in one of the most fascinating uh, compositions of, of linguistic dexterity anywhere in the country. Um, we're beginning to get a Latino population moving here. Uh, obviously not the same as Texas or Florida, but um, that linguistic landscape is is changing. And, and the fact that we had a Bosnian population move in uh, after that conflict has shaped the linguistic texture of the area as well. So how might whites and blacks in the St. Louis area sound different from whites and blacks in Detroit or Chicago or L.A.? Well, there's a very famous rapper here named Nellie. Oh, yeah. And Nellie has some very distinctive characteristics that are unique to um, uh, the hip-hop generation of St. Louisans. So the way that they say here and there, uh, which sounds more like here and there, is, and, I'm, I'm, and I'm unfortunately not representative. So, yeah. you know, you can have Nellie on and he'll demonstrate it. But, love to. but there, there, there are some unique characteristics. And then uh, I recently heard uh, Senator McCaskill answer the question, how do you pronounce the name of the state? And she said, I pronounce it both ways. She didn't skip a beat, you know. So I've noticed that politicians, white politicians, will sometimes say Missouri, sometimes say Missouri. 
but uh, even whites in 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 the state uh, are not of the homogenous linguistic background. Yeah, with politicians, it depends on what part of the state they're happening. Absolutely, to be. <laughs> absolutely, no, no question about that. Lots of calls. Let's uh, let's get to them. We'll start with Gary calling from St. Louis. Gary, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Hello. Hi. Yes, I'm uh, I'm a black man myself, and I I used to work at a call center. And I would get calls a lot to where people would say, thank God that you're not Mexican or black or, you know, Middle Eastern. It's good to hear somebody that's American. <laughs> it's just always interesting to me. Or if I talk to someone on the phone and then when I meet them face to face, you can see the, the shock sometimes in their eyes. Did you ever correct any of the callers? Uh, no, I didn't. I started to a couple of times, but I was like, you know. It's quality calls. You gotta watch what you say and do on the phone. So try to keep an even keel. Interesting, Gary, Gary. Thanks for the call. How does Gary sound to you? Gary sounded like a professional, uh, and the fact that his race uh, could not be detected, or that he was perceived to be a white American, is a reflection of the fact that he's an educated man. That. Uh, is articulate. Yeah. When you were making calls, let's say looking for an apartment for or, right. or trying to, to, for something from the person you were talking to, when they thought maybe you were black, what did they say? What was a typical kind of response? Or was it pretty standard? It, if, the, if I was calling one of the affluent neighborhoods where they had no uh, desire to rent to a black person, they would simply tell me the apartment wasn't available. Now, I always use the phrase, hello, I'm calling about the apartment you have advertised in the paper. This is – the experiment was done long enough ago. It was pre-internet. Mm-hmm. And by using that phrase, and I could say, hello, I'm calling about the apartment you have advertised in the paper. Well, mm-hmm. all I've done there is manipulate pronunciation. Mm-hmm. There's no change in the grammar. So I did the experiment in that way to make sure that I wasn't using words like ain't or – you know, uh, any of the distinctive dialect features and that it was based on pronunciation alone because there are a lot of folks that say, well, once you master the grammar, you shouldn't have any discrimination. And that's not the case. When you were sounding white, what, did they say, come on by today and, uh, and have a look uh, at Absolutely. The and then I had the same reaction as the caller where when, I, when, they, when they saw me in person, they would stammer and say, well, I'm sorry, there must be some mistake. God almighty. <laughs> Face to face. That's uh, that's the that's the well, final. And the courts, the courts, <laughs> the courts were well equipped to deal with face to face discrimination. Yeah. The type of thing we're exactly. talking about, the courts were not well equipped because you, the caller could deny. They say, I, n- "I never saw the person." Yeah. Right. This came of up course. in the O.J. Simpson trial where Johnny Cochran uh, objected f- forcefully to a witness that said they he overheard the voice of a black man. Johnny Cochran said, "You can't tell a person's race based on their voice." Mm-hmm. Let's take another call. Ben in St. Louis will join us. Ben, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me. I, uh, I guess I had a kind of a two-part question. Um, one in that, uh, is your guest dissuading um, African-Americans from using uh, a dialect that would, you know, be reflective of um, racial isolation, and, you know, in, in that he said the last caller sounded, you know, professional and if it you know it, it, it's a it's just a very complicated issue i was just curious if he would be dissuading people from using that uh dialect that reflected racial isolation and also 
um, would have you has your guest observed uh, white youth culture reflecting that same racial racially isolated dialect in wake of the popularity of hip hop? So those are the two questions. So last. Uh, question first, absolutely, yes, depending upon the white youth, they're trying to embrace it. And in the first instance, no. Uh, the glib response is, if everyone spoke the same, I wouldn't have a job. Uh, but the serious part of it is, no, people should speak the dialects that they feel comfortable with, and I'm not dissuading anybody. It's more like what what my comment reflected is uh, similar to a weatherman uh, describing the weather. Um, I will tell you what the linguistic landscape looks like. I'm not making any judgments. And if anything, I'm fascinated by it. But and, and if you take race out of the equation, you know, Southerners are often discriminated against when they go to cities like Chicago or Boston. And similarly, people from Boston uh, may not do that well in Atlanta. And so in those instances, it's really up to the individual if they feel like modifying their speech will alter their circumstances. Along these lines, uh, we have a a tweet from John. I'm a white male from southeast Missouri. When I first moved to St. Louis, it was amazing that no one ever asked me what high school I went to. That is amazing. I often did get, you're not from around here, aren't you? (laughs) Fair enough. Just a a pattern of the voice. All righty, let's bring in Julie calling from Chesterfield. Julie, thank you for waiting. You're on the air. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. I wanted to um, introduce the idea that I haven't heard yet. You're talking about ethnicity and race. I have worked in the corporate world, and I have noticed that my friends who are women, we all tend to pitch our voices lower when we are in a business setting than when we're just talking to our friends and we're being more relaxed because we find that pitching our voices lower takes means that the people around us take us a little more seriously. And I wonder if your uh, guest has any any comments on that. I, I think that's a an important observation, and I'm glad you brought that up, because discrimination based on uh, gender or sex is is prevalent. And we've conducted experiments along those lines um, in, in the employment arena where uh, women who called for uh, executive vice president positions in a bank were told the jobs weren't available when men calling for the same position were told it was available. And there's a phenomena known as uptalk that's more common with women throughout the United States. And it is where it, it, it happens when you make a statement, but it sounds like you're using question intonation. So it's, it's sunny outside. Um, that kind of rising intonation is often more common with women than it is with men. And and it's been criticized, I think, unfairly uh, because I believe that uptalk is inviting your interlocutor to participate in the conversation. And the people who have criticized it have said that it makes the women sound more insecure. And I think your observations about lowering the voice are reflecting the fact that many women in professional context feel that they're not taken as seriously as their uh, male peers, and and they want to make some linguistic adjustments so that they're treated equally and fairly. 
along these lines, we have a tweet from Dan says that this segment is missing the perspective of a black woman with a distinctive black voice. Uh, Any research specifically about how this affects black women? Yes, there is. And there's a lot of important research uh, being conducted by linguists of of all persuasions, but very specifically African-American women that point that out. Um, And they go beyond that. The ones who are anthropological linguists have noted that, for example, uh, black women are discriminated against in the workplace because if you, for example, if you braid your hair or if you wear your hair in a certain way that would be unique for African-American women, that that's subject to ridicule in ways that, you know, white women just don't identify with at all. How how do you uh, define code switching? So code switching, as it's been used, unfortunately, includes when you switch from Spanish to English as well as when you change dialects. Mm -hmm. Technically, what people have been calling code switching for these movies should be called style shifting. When you shift from one dialect to another dialect in the same language. But unfortunately, um, the terminology has been expanded to both. And when people do this switch, what are they doing it for? Typically. They are typically are reacting to the context that they're in, right? right, right. So if you're interviewing for a job or if you find yourself in front of a judge, you're going to try to comport yourself in a way that, that's appropriate to that circumstance. And if you're hanging out with your friends, you're going to, be in a, you're going to use a vernacular that's more relaxed. Kind of like what we heard in the uh, telemarketing clip that we played a little earlier. Exactly. Yeah, that kind of situation. Let's take another call. Bernard joins us. Go ahead, Bernard. You, uh, I wanted to give uh, credit to Dr. Harris of Washington University, who described Ebonics. And uh, I'm an African-American taught in the St. Louis public schools, but we, they called it uh, folk speaking, that they pointed out in our class that there were people from the South, people from Southern Illinois, people from other areas. And the language that they used at home, they discouraged us from using that language and to express ourselves in standard English. And the reason was as for business, but specifically to learn foreign languages like French, German. And in this area, uh, west of the uh, Mississippi, you had a lot of individuals who came in contact at an early age with French. And uh, I thought that that was a good explanation because I couldn't understand uh, some you know white people that were Southerners. I was in the, I was at the University of Houston, uh, Texas, at the law school down there, and they asked me where was I from, and of course I said I was from St. Louis, and they said we knew you were not from down here, that you were a Yankee. That's the first <laughs> time, and, and this was in 1970. I had never been referred to as a Yankee, but they knew that I was not a. African-American, a black person from Texas. And, uh, you know, so I just wanted to uh, I just wanted to express that, that in Ebonics, that they were saying that this cultural difference is regional. And the friends that I met from black friends from Jamaica, Africa, they have they speak standard English. Well, you can't tell where they're from. <laughs> but but it seems like this is a uh, a regional, or this is a, an African American uh, twist on language. So that let's, was get, my let's get John's uh, response to that. Well, I want to actually thank this caller and uh, 
the attribution that he's giving is to Professor Robert Williams, who's emeritus professor of psychology at Washington University. Wonderful guy. He, who coined the term Ebonics. Yeah. And what Bob did, which was important, was he coined that term to really look at the linguistic impact of the African slave trade, not just here in the United States. So there's a Portuguese rendition of Ebonics spoken in Brazil. There's a French rendition of Ebonics spoken in Haiti. And Bob is the one that, Robert Williams, uh, is the professor that really opened that up. And your caller is making an important point because when slaves came to this country, it was illegal to teach them to read and write. The distinctive dialect that's preserved in it today is really the result of not just racial isolation, but the fact that it was they couldn't go to school. It's not till 1954, Brown versus Board, that we have the Supreme Court say that separate uh, is not equal. And so as a result of that bifurcated education system and the centuries of linguistic isolation, you have a distinctive pattern of speech by slave descendants. I've talked to Bob Williams a number of times. and I, I remember one interview years ago, and I think the phrase was, he said, you know what this means? De hawk be jiving tonight. Right. And I said, I had no idea what right, it meant. Right. And it means... It's going to be cold tonight, right? They're right. Well, that's from the Huck is from Chicago, right? The wind, you know. So, yeah. um, but Bob is a remarkable guy and and uh, one of my mentors. Yes, he is a wonderful guy. We have uh, a, a gentleman here. David writes as an effeminate sounding gay attorney. I've learned I must go for a lower voice register to be taken seriously when I'm calling courts and prisons on behalf of clients. Not too surprised to hear that. No, not at all. There are and uh, depending upon a person's sexual orientation and the extent to which they're allowed or they allow themselves to uh, have that represented in speech, there's a tremendous amount of research on whether or not someone sounds gay. So the stereotypical uh, gay feature has to do with the S sound and whether it sounds like this. Mm -hmm. And so the S's, when they are aspirated, uh, is are stereotypically associated with that. And some people control it better than others, and some are very careful as to when they use that to, uh, use speech that might be associated with a more effeminine style or not. Yeah. We have uh, Robin writes this here. My husband and I are white. We adopted an African-American baby. She's 17 now. She's stunned by her – or shunned, I should say, by her black peers in high school for sounding too white because she talks like my husband and me. Well, she's naturally going to talk like the, the, the yeah. people who raised sure. her. And and it's an unfortunate thing that, um, you know, the, the linguistic discrimination cuts in, in different directions. And uh, many um, African-Americans who were educated in affluent suburban school districts who don't readily Im speak the vernacular because they weren't exposed to it are often criticized by black peers who feel that they should sound more like, you know, the homies from the hood. Yeah. What are they trying – they say uh, they're trying to pass? Is that what the Yeah, well, is? but there's, there's – again, there are racial stereotypes here that are unfortunate because um, there's no way for anybody looking at that young woman uh, who meets her on the street not to know that she didn't grow up in the inner city or that her experience was atypical from a linguistic point of view. Hmm. And so they perceive it as she's rejecting her black culture, not that – she was never really exposed to. Mm -hmm. One more call, then we're going to have to wrap it up. But we'll go with Sydney calling from Olivet. Go ahead, Sydney. Yes, how are you today, sir? Great. How are you? Go ahead. Fine. Ron. I've been in sales uh, for about 20 years. 
Um, I've got two master's degrees. I'm a well-educated black man. But I found that when I'm talking to people in certain areas, I have to emulate the way they speak and I have to mirror my customers, if you will. When I sold advertising in southeastern Missouri, those people in that area spoke a certain way. So I would have to mirror the way they talk. So, for example, his, one of my customers was Joe. And I'd have to talk just like Joe so that he could understand that I was on his level, that I understood where he was coming from. Now, I wasn't mocking Joe. I was simply talking in a way that he would be comfortable, if you will. Now, I'd have to do that in and out depending on where I was calling. African-Americans have to put on the quote-unquote white voice sometimes when we're calling in for customer service or we're calling in to get particular jobs because, unfortunately, it is not black people who are in a position to put you into that place, if you will, or to hire you or to give you better service. We're not in that decision-making position. So we have to emulate the people that we're trying to get a service from or get something better from that person. Sydney, we have the point. Uh, time's a wasting for us. Uh, we'll get John Baugh to uh, respond to it. So the phenomenon that he's referring to is actually called either dialect leveling or accommodation. And it's quite common regardless of race. If you're interacting with someone whose dialect is different from yours and you don't devalue that person, you tend to move towards each other's speaking style. And we, we talked about Missouri or Missouri, right, and that some people will switch depending upon it is, where it is. Well, what he's talking about is the fact that when he was talking to Joe, who was a good old boy from mm-hmm. the country, mm-hmm. he sounded like Joe. But if he's talking to somebody else who sounds like they're from New York, he might switch up and do New York. There's the code switch for you right there. There you go. I'll bet you that uh, he's a pretty good salesman, too. I'll bet, he, I bet, yeah, I bet his sales were uh, probably through the roof when he could adjust himself. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, John, uh, it's been so great talking to you, Don, as it always, always is. always a pleasure, Don, always. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.